Welcome to another episode of the Powerless to Powerful Recovery podcast. My name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic and addict. As always, our mission is to share experience, strength, and hope across multiple media platforms. The story of addiction and the road to recovery. We're not affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous or any other 12-step-based organizations or groups in any way. Today's episode, we're going to be exploring Step 12, found on page 89, Chapter 7, Working with Others. This is the most important step, man. Because remember, you're not here, you don't come to the fellowship to be a sponsee. You come to be a sponsor. That's just the bottom line of it. It's a pay it forward program. You have to utilize your past to help others. The big question always is how do you forgive yourself? How do you apply the serenity prayer? How do you truly let go of your past? How do you how do you do it? And it comes from working with others. Every time I sit down with a sponsee, and I get to say me too, but I don't have to live that way anymore. I'm starting to attach to my past with gratitude. And if you've done a lot of harm, it requires a whole bunch of step work, man. It just does. Because that's what it's all about. To help others, utilizing your past. Your past becomes your greatest asset. I don't regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. But it comes from working the 12th step. You know, anytime I work with guys and they get through the majority of the program or they work all the steps and they end up relapsing, whenever they come back, there's usually two different things that we need to talk about. The first thing is the fifth step. It says, having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. They never completed their house cleaning. They took inventory, all right, and hung on to some of the worst items in stock. So usually it's something out of the fifth step. But ultimately, the second question becomes, have you carried the message? Have you utilized your past to help others? Have you sat down with a sponsee and done a fourth step and a fifth step, been able to say me too, to start that healing process and attach to gratitude and really truly move forward? Because that's what it's all about. The 12th step is going to give a whole bunch of suggestions, some ideas on how to actually work with others. So we're going to go through that today. So we're on page 89. Practical experience shows that nothing so much will ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. Intensive work. Remember, my very life depends upon the constant thought of others and how I may help meet their needs. God's will is to be selfless, to be of service. Immunity, man. Intensive work with other alcoholics. What's that look like for you? It works when all other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can, can you can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Remember, man, you're dealing with these guys, man. They're sick. They're ill. You have to understand that. You have to. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover. To see them help others. To watch loneliness vanish. To see a fellowship grow up about you. To have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. You know, when I work with others, man, I get to see a miracle happen right in front of me. Then I see them go help someone else and get their first sponsee. Man, it'll make me shed a tear. It just will. To see that fellowship grow up. You know, it's one thing to believe in a higher power. and It's another thing to experience that higher power working in your life. 
And the easiest way you could experience is by sitting down with someone who's broken and beat down and has tears in their eyes and that pain is there and you get to see them recover and you experience God working through you and in their life. And it becomes an undeniable fact that there's this power out there that performs miracles. That's what it's all about. You know, and I remember uh, when I first got sober and I was going to meetings and, you know, at Florence North Unit and there would be maybe like 10 guys at the meetings. And over a few year period, we would have almost 50 guys at these meetings to watch that fellowship grow, to watch these guys recover. And now to see them out here and we're all together, and we're all recovering, we're all helping others. That's what it's all about. And I wouldn't miss it for the world. I just wouldn't. To teach something is to master it. And when you're a sponsor, you have to master it, man. And that's what it's all about. Perhaps you're not acquainted with any drinkers who want to recover. You can easily find some by asking a few doctors, ministers, priests, or hospitals. They will be only too glad to assist you. Don't start out as an evangelist or reformer. Unfortunately, a lot of prejudice exists. You'll be handicapped if you arouse it. Ministers and doctors are confident and competent, and you can learn much from them if you wish. But it happens that because of your own drinking experience, you can be uniquely useful to other alcoholics. We're useful to each other because we've recovered. We have the solution. We're the same person, that alcoholic mentality, the manifestations of our illness. If you're an alcoholic and addict, we can help each other because we've all done the same things. They might look a little different by the people, places, and things that are involved in the situation and circumstances, but ultimately the alcoholic mentality in all of us is the same. And that's how we're able to help. So cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. When you discover a prospect for Alcoholics Anonymous, find out all you can about him. If he doesn't want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. You may spoil a later opportunity. Either they want it or they don't. That's just a fact. You cannot want it more than they do. You know, I say this line all the time, man, and some people, they don't like it, but it's the truth. Sometimes you got to step right over the bodies. That's just the truth of it. Either they want help or they don't. But if, if they reach up their hand then I'm willing to do anything to help them. But I can't want it more than they do. But the hand of AA will always be there, and for that I am responsible. This advice is given for this family also. They should be patient, realizing they're dealing with a sick person. If there is any indication he wants to stop, have a good talk with the person most interested in him, usually his wife. Get an idea of his behavior, his problems, his background. The seriousness of his condition, his religious learnings. You need this information to put yourself in his place to see how you like him to approach you if the tables were turned. So it's always important to know as much as you can about the individual. This way you can meet them where they're at. You know, I work in recovery, man. And when I when I hear these guys and the clients that I work with, I'm always trying to learn as much as I can about them. And the same thing goes with sponsees. This way I can get a better understanding of how to meet them where they're at, how to approach them, and how to deliver the material the best of my ability that I can. If I know his drug of choice, if I know his conception or lack of of a higher power, if I know what his family dynamic looks like, if I know what the situation is with his wife, his girlfriend, the kids, if I know those things, it gives me a better understanding of how to reach that individual. And that's what it's all about. So learn as much as you can. Sometimes it's wise to wait till he goes on a binge. The family may object to this, but unless he is in dangerous physical condition, it is better to risk it. 
Don't deal with him when he's very drunk unless he is ugly and the family needs your help. You know, people call me all the time, man. They like to get drunk or high and they like to call me and reach out. You know, they get emotional and I've been there too. I get emotional. I want help. And tomorrow we're going to do this. And I call everyone. I call my wife or I talk to my wife about it. I call my mom and I, and I'm crying and tomorrow I'm going to do this program and tomorrow never comes. But anytime anyone ever calls me, man, I just tell them, Hey, when you're sober in the morning, man, give me a call. If you still feel the way you do, I'll do anything I can to help you. But it happens all the time. Wait for the end of a spree or at least a lucid interval. Let the let his family or friends ask if he wants to quit for good and if he's willing to go to any extreme to do so. That's usually the first question that I ask a sponsee. When they ask me to sponsor them, the first thing is, are you willing to go to any lengths for your recovery? Because remember, we're in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, it gets worse, never better. So if I have a progressive disease, that tells me that I have to have an extremely aggressive recovery. And I don't know if you're like me, but in my disease, I went through some extreme lengths to continue that behavior. So I have to be willing to go to farther ones for my recovery, and that's just the truth. If he says yes, then his attention should be drawn to you as a person who has recovered. Again, remember, it says recovered 17 times in the first 164 of the big book. It says recovering one time. We're here to recover from this disease, from a hopeless condition of mind and body. What's that look like? Well, if I'm recovered, that means the mental obsession to want to change the way I feel has been removed. The physical craving for drugs and alcohol has been removed as well. But another way that I could explain recovered is when character defects just don't feel so good anymore. If I lie today, it just doesn't feel right. So what that tells me is that sanity has returned. You should be described to him as one of a fellowship who is part of their own recovery, trying to help others and you and who would be glad to talk to him if he cares to see you. If he does not want to see you, never force yourself upon him. You know, I learned some of these these suggestions the hard way in the beginning. I would hunt people down, I would call people, I would continuously asking, what'd you do for your recovery today? I would follow them over to their house. I would search their lockers. I would pat them down. I mean, I would do all these things, but the facts are if they don't want to see you and they're not ready to do it, they're never going to find recovery. Again, you can't want it more than they do. So never force yourself on them. If they don't call me, they don't call me. If they don't show up, they don't show up. I give them 10 minutes. If you're 10 minutes late, I'm moving on to the next guy. That's just the truth of it. Because in my recovery, I was early. I had the work done. My sponsor asked me to read to page 164. I had it done in two days. I was ready to go. I was willing to do anything because the pain was so great that I was willing to do anything I could to recover from this thing. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I wanted to be rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence. And that's just the truth. But everybody's different. It's true. But if they can't show up and they can't call you, then you might want it more than they do and never force yourself upon them. Neither should the family hysterically plead with him to do anything, nor should they tell you him much about you. They should wait for the end of his next drinking bout. You might place this book where you can see it in the interval. Here, no specific rule can be given. The family must decide these things, but urge them not to be over anxious, for that might spoil matters. Usually, the family should. Not try to tell your story. When possible, avoid meeting a man through his family. Approach through a doctor or institution is a better bet. If your man needs hospitalization, he should have it, but not forcibly unless he is violent. Let the doctor, if he will, tell him that he has something in the way of a solution. When your man is better, the doctor might suggest a visit from you. 
Though you have talked with the family, leave them out of the first discussion. Under these conditions, your prospect will see he is under no pressure. You know, it's extremely important. A lot of times with families that reach out to me, um, you know, girlfriends or wives will reach out to me. And it's very slippery slope because it's it's hard when a sponsee knows that you have a direct connection and a phone number to their family. And they're less likely to tell you the truth because they think or they perceive that you're probably going to say something to them, even though that's just not the case. But they believe that and they're less likely to be honest or want to work with you. So I always try to leave that out. When your man is better, the doctor might suggest a visit from you. He will feel he can deal with you without being nagged by his family. Call on him while he is still jittery. He may be more receptive when depressed. You know, it's the gift of pain and desperation. When I'm not, when I don't feel that pain, I'm less likely to follow through with the program. You know, when I was at North Unit, we used to post a sign that said, Black eyes and store bills come to a meeting. When I see guys with the tears in their eyes, when I see the guys with the black eyes, when I see the guys who are underweight, when I see that pain in their eyes, those are the guys that I approach. Because they got that gift. So what's important is to capitalize on that pain and get recovery, not relief. Because what happens so many times is you get relief and not recovery and you mistake mistake relief for recovery and you think you got it all figured out. So the more depressed, the better. Now it's going to give some suggestions the first time you meet with somebody. See your man alone if possible. I always meet them alone. I always meet them in an intimate setting where we could start to create that intimacy between each other. Intimacy in the way of the genuine sharing of one's true self with another. That's important to start to develop that right away from the first meeting. At first, engage in general conversation. After a while, turn to talk to some phase of your drinking. Tell him about your drinking habits, symptoms, experiences to encourage him to speak about himself. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. You will thus get a better idea of how you ought to proceed. If he's not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career up to the time you quit. But say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. If he is in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles liquor and drugs have caused you, being careful not to moralize or lecture. If his mood is light, tell him humorous stories of your escapades. Get him to tell some of his. You know, what's most important when I first sit down with a sponsee, you know, usually every time you work with a newcomer, you're going to do do it the same way you went through the the steps with your sponsor. You're going to keep it the same way. You know, but in the beginning, you know, when I first sit down, I always like to just to kind of break the ice a little bit, you know. But what I'm really driving at is really what I'm asking him is first to understand that I am the same as him. Because a lot of times these guys don't know us in active addiction. So when they see us with the tone in our voice, the physical appearance that we have, the confidence that we speak of, the happiness, the relationships that we carry, the material things, sure, they come to. And when they see us and they look at us and they say, there's no way that this dude was as bad as me. There's just no way. So in the beginning, to share some of your experience is very important because ultimately what you're driving at is you want them to say, how'd you do it? Great question. I'm glad, I glad, I'm glad you asked. Great question. And then we could start to talk a little bit about the solution. So in the beginning, that's usually what I'm driving for. When he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. Tell him how you were baffled, how baffled you were, how you finally learned you were sick. Give him an account of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink of a spree. We suggest you do this as we have done in the chapter of alcoholism. That's step one, more about alcoholism. If he's an alcoholic, he will understand you at once. 
He will match your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. You know, to, to understand, because remember, the first 51 pages of the big book is designed for the sponsee to diagnose himself. So as a sponsor, all you're doing is you're laying all these things out for him. So explain them through your own experience. Explain what the mental obsession of physical allergy looks like. Explain to him the five types of users and how you can relate to every single one of them from the doctor's opinion, depending on which part or which stage of your addiction you're in. And making the supreme sacrifice. And being the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde description, the real alcoholic. And understanding why it's a thinking problem for you. Repeating the same things over and thinking you're going to get a different result despite evidence that shows you for year upon year upon year, upon attempt upon attempt upon attempt, you've never been able to do that. Explain that through your own experience. And then look at the insanity with the jaywalking, the progression of your disease, why self-knowledge wasn't good enough for you. Lay out all these things for him and get him to say, yes, dude, that's me. Well, then we need to get them feet moving. If you're satisfied he's a real alcoholic, begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Remember, malady is a sickness. Show him from your own experience how the queer mental condition surrounding that first drink prevents normal functioning of the willpower. And that's a good description of powerless. No control, lack of control. You know, clinically, they'll diagnose you in three ways. Poor control over stopping, poor control over the amount you take, and continued use despite negative consequences. But that willpower when I just don't want to do it today, but I still find myself doing it. I'm not getting high today. I'm not getting high today as I'm dialing the dope man's number. I'm not getting drunk today. I'm not getting drunk today as I'm walking to the liquor store. That's powerless. And remember, the baffling feature of addiction is the utter inability to leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish. Talks about that in step one. I could wish it. I could see the need everywhere. I could not want to do with everything that's in me, but yet I still do it. That's powerless. Don't at this stage refer to the book unless he has seen it and wishes to discuss it. And be careful not to brand him as an alcoholic. Let him draw his own conclusion. If he sticks to the idea he can still control his drinking, tell him he possibly can if he's not too alcoholic. But insist that if he's severely afflicted, there may be little chance he can recover by himself. Continue to speak of alcoholism as an illness, a fatal malady. Remember, it's a disease. It's got some basic characteristics. It's progressive. It gets worse, never better. If left untreated, it's chronic. It causes death. We all know that. And genetics hasn't been scientifically proven, but it's genetic. Keep his attention focused mainly on your personal experience. Explain that many people are doomed who never realize their predicament. Doctors are rightly loath to tell alcohol patients the whole story unless it will serve good purpose. But you may talk about it to him about the hopelessness of alcoholism because you offer a solution. You know, some doctors, you know, we go to these doctors, we go to these psychiatrists, we go to these counselors, and they don't know the solution. They just don't. They have some ideas. They have, they have some things that work for some people. But we know the solution, the program, the steps. Where do you find it? Where is the solution? It starts with steps one, two, and three. Admitting powerless, asking for help, pushing aside everything that we thought we knew, and saying, I don't know, man, I need help. But ultimately coming to believe in a higher power in step two and identifying this power to your belief at that moment, listing some morals, some values, some spiritual characteristics to be a good father, son, brother, and husband, to live like my daughter was next to me at all times, to be sober, to be loving, to be committed, to be active, to be forgiving, to be tolerant, to be understanding. That's everything I believe my higher power to be. 
So when I make that decision in step three to turn my will in my life, my thoughts and my actions, now I know how to apply it. And that's the solution followed by the other steps. Consistency creates an identity, one we can be proud of. We repair some relationships. We understand the cause and effect of why we do what we do in four. We get honest in five. We create an identity in six. We reaffirm our third step decision in step seven, and we continue to maintain it through 10, 11, and 12. Ultimately, creating an identity we can be proud of and removing the obsession to want to change the way we feel. So we know this. We have the solution. We can tell them that. That's what's so important. That's why we're so qualified to help each other. You will soon have your friend admitting he has many, if not all, of the traits of an alcoholic. If his own doctor is willing to tell him that he is an alcoholic, so much the better. Even though your protege may not have entirely admitted his condition, he may become very curious to know how you got well. Let him ask you the question, if you will. Tell him exactly what happened to you. Stress the spiritual feature freely. Why? Because that is the solution. The main object of this book is enable you to find a power greater in yourself, which will solve all your problems. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. That is the solution. If the man be agnostic or an atheist, make it empathetic that he does not have to agree with your conception of God. He can choose any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing is that he be willing to believe in a power greater than himself and that he live by spiritual principles. So if we know that the higher power and God is the solution, we have to let them know that it's open to everybody. And the rest of this page is going to kind of just talk about that. And there's one main point that I really want to talk about in it. When dealing with such a person, use everyday language to describe spiritual principles. There's no use arousing any prejudice he may have against certain theological terms and conceptions about which he may already be confused. Don't raise such issues no matter what your convictions are. Your prospect may belong to religious denominations. His religious education and training may be far superior to yours. In that case, he's going to wonder how you could add anything to what he already knows. But he will be curious to learn why his own convictions have not worked and why yours seem to work so well. He may be an example of of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. Pay attention. To be vital, faith must must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish, constructive action. That's what it's all about. It's a combination. Faith without works is dead, right? So we have this conception of God or this higher power. Or maybe we grew up that way. Maybe the believe is so easy because we've always been a believer, but there was never any action behind it. And that's what the steps are for. The steps are going to give you a principle that's associated with each step to grasp that's necessary in order to effectively work that step. And then it gives you a tool. So now you take the principles, the tool, your belief in a higher power, and you put them together. And that is how it works. Let him see that you're not there to instruct him in religion. And Mitty probably knows more about it than you do. But call to his attention the fact, however deep his faith and knowledge, he could not have applied it or he would not drink. So some guys, man, when I first sit down, they want to tell me this belief in God. And they want to tell me how they've always been a believer and how and all these different things, man. And, and, and a lot of times they know more about it than I do. And that's okay. And the main thing that I always tell them is, well, if it works so well we wouldn't be sitting here today. And sometimes they they don't like that, but it's the truth. If you had this connection to this power already, then we wouldn't be here right now. So let's cross that bridge when we get there. 
Perhaps your story will help him see where he has failed to practice the very precepts he knows so well. We represent no particular faith or denomination. We're dealing only with general principles common to most denominations. Outline the program of action. Explain how you made a self-appraisal, how you straightened out your past, why you're now endeavoring to be helpful to him. It is important for him to realize that your attempt to pass this on plays a vital part in your own recovery. Actually, he may be helping you more than you are helping him. And I love saying that to newcomers. When I first work with them, I say, look, man, you're going to help me more than I'm ever going to help you. And they think you're nuts, but they won't truly realize how, how true that statement is until they work with another alcoholic. Then they'll get it. But in the beginning, they don't. Make it plain he's under no obligation to you, that you, you hope only that he will try to help other alcoholics when he escapes his own difficulties. Suggest how important it is he placed the welfare of other people ahead of his own. Make it clear that he's under no pressure, that he needn't see you again if he doesn't want to. You should not be offended if he wants to call it off, for he has helped you more than you have helped him. If your talk has been sane, quiet, and full of human understanding, you may perhaps have made a friend. Maybe you have disturbed him about the question of alcoholism. This is all to the good. The more hopeless he feels, the better. He'll be more likely to follow your suggestions. You know, when a, when, a, when a sponsee or a newcomer comes to me and I start working with him and he's got two cars, he's got a 401k, he's got 10 grand in the bank, he's got a good job, his, his family relationships are doing well. Well, let me tell you something, man. <laughs> They're less likely to follow suggestions. Usually you're going to work with two different types of guys. You're going to work with a guy who has been sober uh, for a period of time, just dry, and he's just not happy and he sees the joy and the happiness of others who work a program. And, and so they're less likely to follow your suggestions because they put a couple of days together already. But the best ones are the guys who just came off a run, who just came out of detox, who just came out of the hole, who just got beat up, who has no phones on, who just failed UAs, who parents kicked him out, who guys who just came off the streets. They're more likely to follow your suggestions. It's just the truth. Your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all of the program. He may may rebel at the thought of a drastic house cleaning, which requires discussion with other people. Do not contradict such views. Tell him you once felt as he does, but you doubt whether you would have made much progress had you not taken action. On your first visit, tell him about the Fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous. If he shows interest, lend him a copy of the book. So usually when I first sit down with guys, they're going to tell me the basic things, two things that they don't want to do. And the first one is, I don't believe in God. I don't know how I'm going to do it. This is a religious program. I'm an agnostic. I'm an atheist. And I have a resentment towards God and all the things I've been through. If there is a God, and they continue to tell you why that's going to be a problem. And the second thing they're going to tell you is, how do I make amends to my family when I've said it a million times? How am I going to do that? I got fear associated with that. And so what I always tell them, I use an old sales technique. It's called feel, felt, found. Like, look, man, I understand how you feel when I got to this part, when I first sat down with my sponsee and I thought to myself, I had a lot of fear about how I was going to make amends to my mom, my dad and my wife for the hundredth time. I understand how you feel because I felt the same way you did. But what I found out is the steps go in order for a reason. When I got to steps eight and nine, there was a plan put together that made it different. And nine times out of 10, the unexpected happens. So I understand how you feel because I felt the same way. But what I found out is, and that's the solution, and it works with everything. It works with everything in everyday life as well. And usually I'll give them a book at this moment. I'll give them a book and I'll tell them to read to page 164. Now, what I really want to do when I tell them that 
is just to see what kind of willingness they have. I just want to see what type of action they're willing to put in. It's like a, a heart check, right? If you've ever been to prison, you know, they try to heart check you to see where you're at, to see what type of heart you have. Well, I guess this will be called the fellowship heart check. I just want to see what they're going to do. But the majority of the time, they usually don't read. <laughs> That's just the truth. They usually don't, but I just want to see if they do. Unless your friend wants to talk further about himself, don't wear out your welcome. Give him a chance to think it over. If you do stay, let him steer the conversation any direction he likes. Sometime a, man, a new man is anxious to proceed at once. You may be tempted to do so. This is sometimes a mistake. If he has trouble later, he's likely to say that you rushed him. And anyone who's worked with a lot of guys, no matter whatever ends up happening, they usually blame their sponsor anyways. And that's just the truth of it. It comes with the territory, but that's okay. But usually in the beginning, man, it's just that first meet and greet, breakdown, talking about the solution, a breakdown of the steps, showing him that you are just like him, but you've recovered and you offer a solution. And then usually I'll give them the book. And at that moment, I want to see if they're going to put any work in. I want to see if they're going to call me again. I want to see if they're going to show up. I want to see if they're going to read. I don't want to rush them. You don't graduate from the steps. You don't get a certificate. This is a forever thing. You will be most successful with alcoholics if you don't exhibit any passion or crusade or, or reform. Never talk down to an alcoholic from any moral spiritual hilltop. Simply lay out the kit of spiritual tools for his inspection. Show him how they work with you. Offer him friendship and fellowship. Tell him if he wants to get well, you do anything to help him. And I always say that to them. I said, I'm willing to do anything I can, can do to possibly help you. I'm extremely busy, but I will make time for you if you want this recovery and you want it more than I want it for you then I'm willing to do anything I can to help you. If he is not interested in your solution, if he expects you to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties or nurse for his sprees, you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. This he may do after he gets hurt some more. You know, what are their motives, man? Are their motives a cigarette and a cup of coffee and 20 bucks? Are their motives is just to, just to man, get a little bit of relief and let the family you know, think that they're doing something different? What are their motives? If he is sincerely interested and wants to see you again, ask him to read this book in the interval. After doing that, he must decide for himself whether he wants to go on. He should not be pushed or prodded by you, his wife, or his friends. If he's defying God, the desire must come from within. If he thinks he can do the job some other way or prefers some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. We have no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that worked with us. There's many paths to recovery. There just are. The 12-step path just happens to be mine. If that individual wants to explore smart recovery or cognitive behavioral therapy or a straight religious path or celebrate recovery or any of those things, do it. I don't care what path you work. Work it. Grasp it. Grab onto it like a drowning man. Grab onto this path and give it everything you got. Because I'll tell you one thing. You got everything to gain and nothing to lose from it. We have no monopoly on God, but find something, man. That is the most important thing and work it. But point out that alcoholics have much in common and that you would like in any case to be friendly. Let it go at that. Do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You're sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. 
If you leave such a person alone, he may be soon convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. There's so many people out there suffering. There's so many people out there that need help. It's said it multiple times in this chapter. Never force yourself on him. You can't want it more than he do. To spend too much time is the waste time to, that's afforded to another alcoholic who might be desperate enough. If they don't want it, man, move on to the next one. There's plenty of people out there who want it. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He failed entirely. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. You know, in the beginning, right, Bill W., he, him and Lois, they ended up having a home that the Lois's family left uh, to, to Bill W. and Lois. And Bill had had that spiritual experience in Dr. Silkworth's hospital on his third attempt. He had the burning bush uh, type of experience like the big book describes, right, a, a flashing light. He had that experience and he knew he had to work with others after that meeting with Ebby. The, the program loosely got developed, but he hadn't met Dr. Bob yet. And what he was doing every day, Lois worked at a warehouse, a, a clothing store. She sold clothes, a department store. And uh, Bill W. would go out all day and find drunk people on the streets and bums and bring them into the house. And they're dying in there. They're breaking his furniture. Nobody's recovering. And he goes to Lois and he says, honey, it just isn't working. And she said, look, stupid, you're still sober. It is working. Okay, good point. Good call. <laughs> so now it's going to talk about their second meeting. Suppose now you're making a second visit to the man. He's read this volume and says he's prepared to go through the 12 steps of the program recovery. Having had the experience yourself, you can give him much practical advice. Let him know you're available. If he wishes to make a decision and tell a story, but do not insist upon it if he prefers to consult someone else. If they want to work with somebody else, that's okay too. Again, I don't care what path, what sponsor. I don't care what home group. I don't care what service commitment. I don't care what type of God you believe in. Just do it. He may be broken homeless. If he is, you might try to help him get a job or give him a little financial assistance. But you should not deprive your family or creditors of money they should have. Perhaps you will want to take the man into your home for a few days. Be sure to use your discretion. Be certain he will be welcomed by your family, that he's not trying to oppose upon you for money, connections, or shelter. Permit that and you only harm him. You will be making it possible for him to be insincere. You may be aiding in his destruction rather than his recovery. You may be enabling him. You know, in the beginning, man, when I first got sober and I was on the yard and I would have all these guys, man, they would come to me and they'd have store bills and everyone on the yard wants to, to, to beat their ass, man. That's the truth. Man, dude, I could feel that pain. I could remember what that was like for me. And I'd want to pay their bills and I want to give them money and I want to give them coffee and I want to give them cigarettes. And I wanted to do all these things. And the same thing goes out here, man. I want to help guys out here financially in a lot of ways because I know what it's like and I know how much that helps. But the facts are, man, is the best way that I could help anybody in recovery is to give them my time. The best way I could help anyone is to get them in the book. That is the best way. Sure, I'll help them find jobs and sober livings, and I do that on a day-to-day -day basis all day long. And sure, that's okay too. But the solution is the book. The solution is the steps, and that's the greatest gift I can give anyone. Never avoid these responsibilities, but be sure you're doing the right thing if you assume them. I love this part right here. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. 
You, ha- you have to act the Good Samaritan every day if need be. It may mean the loss of many nights' sleep, great interference with your pleasures, interruptions to your business. It may mean sharing your money, your home, counseling frantic wives and relatives, innumerable trips to police, courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails, and asylums. Your telephone may jangle any time, day or night. Your wife may sometimes say she's neglected. A drug may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. You may have to fight with him if he is violent. Sometimes you'll have to call a doctor or minister sedatives under his direction. Another time, you may have to send for the police or an ambulance. Occasionally, you have to meet these conditions. This is a forever thing, man. Helping others and being of service, man. If somebody calls me, I'm there if I could be there. That's just the truth of it. That's what it's all about, man. Being of service to others. Living in God's will. The easiest way that I could explain God's will is in four different characteristics. To live in character asset to have gratitude, to be selfless, and to be positive, man. And any time, day or night, I have to be willing at any moment to drop everything and go help someone desperately in need because that's what it's all about. We seldom allow an alcoholic to live in our home for a long time. It's not good for him. And it sometimes creates serious complications in a family. Though an alcoholic does not respond, there's no reason why you should neglect his family. You should continue to be friendly to them. The family should be offered your way of life. Should they accept and practice spiritual principles, there's a much better chance that the head of the family will recover. And even though he continues to drink, the family will find life more bearable. You know, I think every single person on the planet should work the steps. I just believe that with everything that I am. There's only one step really that has anything to do with drugs and alcohol, and that's step one, but you could be powerless over anything. You just can't. The rest is a design for living, man, that gives you tools to become the best versions of yourself. And I think everyone on the planet should become the best version of their self. Get the family involved. My wife got a book. She got involved. She worked the steps. It was so important for her to understand me because she's a normal person. Her reaction is very different for anything mind altering. But what a blessing that's been. For the type of alcoholic who is able and willing To get well, a little charity in the ordinary sense the word is needed or wanted. The men who cry for money or shelter before conquering alcohol are on the wrong track. Yet we do go to great extremes to provide each other with these very things. When such action is warranted, this may seem inconsistent, but we think it's not. This next part is so critical. It is not the matter of giving that is in the question, but when and how to give. That often makes the difference between failure and success. The minute we put our work on a service plane, the alcohol commences to rely upon our assistance rather than upon God. He clamors for this or that, claiming he cannot master alcohol until his material needs are cared for. Nonsense. Some of us have taken very hard knocks to learn this truth. Job or no job, wife or no wife, we simply do not stop drinking or using so long as we place dependence upon other people ahead of dependence upon God. The whole point is for you to establish a relationship with a higher power. If your recovery is contingent upon getting a job, your wife coming back, your mom and dad trusting you again, your brother wanting you in his life, being able to be there for the kids, your kids forgiving you. If your recovery is dependent upon that, you're headed for trouble because those things just don't come back sometimes. You might not get that job. Your mom might take a long time to trust you again. Your wife might not want to be with you. Your son or your daughter might just not want to have that relationship with you anymore. If I am your higher power, I am human. I will let you down. But that connection, that connection to God, that connection will always be there and he'll never let you down if you do your part. 
That's what this program is about, to develop a relationship with God that will solve all your problems. Burn the idea into the consciousness of every man. He can get well regardless of anyone. The only condition is that he trusts in God and clean house. So now the next part of the book is going to describe three different situations of family issues, issues with our significant other, and also the kids. Now, the domestic problem, there may be divorce, separation, or strained relations when your prospect has made such reparation as he can do to his family and though and has thoroughly explained to them that his new principles by which he is living, he should proceed to put those principles into action at home. That is, if he's lucky enough to have a home. Though his family be at fault in many respects, he should not be concerned about that. He should concentrate on his own spiritual drum- demonstration. Argument and fault finding are to be avoided like the plague. In many homes, this is a difficult thing to do, but it must be done if any results are to be expected. It persisted, and if for a few months, the effect on a man's family is sure to be a great one. The most incompatible people discover they have a basis upon which they can meet. Little by little, the family may see their own defects in a minimum. These things can be discussed in an atmosphere of helpfulness and friendliness. After they've seen tangible results, the family will perhaps want to go along. These things will come to pass naturally. And in good time, provided, however, the alcoholic continues to demonstrate that he can be sober, considerate, and helpful, regardless of what anyone says or does. You know, that is so important, man. If you're in jail, if you're in treatment, if you're on the streets, if you're in sober living, if you're at home and it's just toxic situation, but you're finding recovery and you're going to meetings and you find yourself in one of those positions... Everybody who loves us, loves us is just so hopeful that this is the time. But they've been hopeful so many times before. Every day they gain more confidence in us and they're hopeful and they just hope that this is it for us. That this is the time that we get recovery, not relief. They're so hopeful. That's why it's so critical when we have interactions with our family that we maintain the spiritual principles no matter what anyone says or does. If I go to the store and it takes me longer and I come back and my wife says, where have you been? Why is it taking you so long? Let me see your eyes. What's going on? Where, what, where, where, I've been calling you. Why didn't you answer? If I respond and say, what? Are you kidding me? Don't ask me where I've been. Don't you know I sponsor guys? I work with others. I got 60 days clean. Are you kidding me? And I storm off. That's that same old Jason. That's them same old behaviors. And then they say, yep, I knew it. This isn't his time. But if I say, you know what, honey, you're right. You have every right to ask me where I've been. Experiences previously have shown that when I'm gone longer, it's not good. But I was talking to somebody. I grabbed a couple extra groceries. You just wrote out an eight-year prison sentence with me. You've loved me. And you're only asking me right now because you care. And I appreciate you asking me where I've been. Thank you. That's the difference. Those are the spiritual principles. That's the truth. That's what shows them it's been different. When mom questions me, when a friend questions me, my brother questions me, I have to maintain this character no matter what. I have to practice these principles because it's so important. And that's how they understand that it's the real thing. That's how the trust come back. That's how the relationships come back. That's how they see the psychic change. That's how we maintain our daily reprieve. That's how we maintain our spiritual condition. 
Of course, we all fall much below the standard many times, but we must try to repair the damage immediately lest we pay the penalty by a spree. So we'll fall short. Character defects will come out. We might say some things we shouldn't. We might act in a way that we definitely know is unhealthy for us and everybody around us. And when that happens, our job is to correct it immediately. Now it's going to talk about divorce and separation. There should be no undue haste for the couple to get together. The man should be sure of his recovery. The wife should fully understand his new way of life. If their old relationship is to be resumed, it must be on a better basis since the former did not work. This means a new attitude and spirit all around. Sometimes it's in the best interest of all concerned that a couple remain apart. Obviously, no rule can be laid down. Let the alcoholic continue his program day by day. When the time for living together has come, it will be apparent to both parties. Let no alcoholic say he cannot recover unless he has his family back. This just isn't so. In some cases, the wife will never come back for one reason or another. Remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. It's dependent upon his relationship with God. We've seen men get well whose families have not returned at all. We've seen others slip when the family comes back too soon. Can you relate to that? Both you and the new man must, must walk day by day and hand by hand in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstance. When working with a man and his family, you should take care not to participate in their quarrels. You may spoil your chance of being helpful if you do, but urge upon a man's family that he's been a very sick person and he should be treated accordingly. You should warn against arousing resentment or jealousy. You should point out that his defects of character are not going to disappear overnight. Show them that he has entered upon a period of growth. Remember, guys, constant, never-ending growth. That is the goal on a day-to-day basis. My job, my part, my action step, my part of God's will is to find a way to grow every single day, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. You know, that paragraph that we just read, it. you know, I, man, I always try to shy away from getting involved with anything that has to do with their families when it comes to arguments or they want me to speak on their behalf. Sure, if it happens and you're doing the deal, I will have no problem sharing that with them. But if you're not, I'm not going to lie for you. Just not. So yeah, be careful. What, sometimes people ask, ask questions they really don't want the answers to. <laughs> if you have been successful in solving your own domestic problems, tell the newcomer's family how that was accomplished. In this way, you can set them on the right track without becoming critical of them. The story of how you and your wife said to your difficulties is worth any amount of criticism. You know, that's something that's really special to me. You know, the relationship that I have with my wife and the things that we've been through together and the changes that came over and how we were able to, to maintain our relationship from a distance through the prison time, through all the damage that I've caused, overcoming the resentment, repairing our relationship, becoming better than we ever were before together and doing it, her getting involved in the steps and being part of my recovery and coming, we chair a meeting together, including her and her understanding and willingness to, to understand what this disease is so she can better understand me. Man, dude, it's just important, man. I think it's a very critical aspect of recovery and us sharing that with others. God, it's powerful. Assuming we're spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of remarkable things alcoholics aren't supposed to do. People have said we must not go anywhere where liquor is served. We must not have it in our homes. We must shun friends who drink. We must avoid moving pictures which show drinking scenes. We must not go into bars or our friends must hide their bottles if we go to their houses. We mustn't think or be reminded about alcohol at all. 
experience shows us shows that this is not necessarily so. We meet these conditions every day. An alcoholic who cannot meet them cannot meet them still has an alcoholic mind. There's something a matter with his spiritual status. Listen, man. If you can't go, so, I mean, in the beginning and early recovery, I don't suggest you go do all these things. Or if there are still problems for you, then you have to redouble your efforts. You have to keep working the program. Maybe the obsession to want to change the way you feel has been removed, hasn't been removed yet. But let me tell you something. If my parents know that I'm coming over for dinner and they have to hide the alcohol, there's a problem with my program. If my wife can't go out and have a glass of wine when we're at a nice restaurant, and that's a trigger for me, and that's a problem for me, and she's concerned about that, there's something wrong with me. Because it says now his only chance for sobriety would be someplace like Greenland Ice Cap, and even there an Eskimo might turn up with a bottle of scotch and ruin everything. Ask any woman who has sent her husband to distant places on the theory he would escape the alcohol problem. In our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism which proposes to shield a sick man from temptation is doomed to fail. If I have to be shielded, that's trouble. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up in a bigger explosion than ever. We've tried these methods. These attempts to do the impossible have always failed. So our rule is not to avoid a place where there's drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. That includes bars, nightclubs, dances, receptions, weddings, even plain old whoopee parties. To a person who's had the experience with an alcoholic, this might seem like tempting providence, but it isn't. You will note that we made an important qualification. That important qualification is that we've recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. That is the qualification. Therefore, ask yourself on each occasion, have I any good social business or personal reason for going to this place? Or am I expecting to steal a little vicarious pleasure from the atmosphere of such places? If you answer the question satisfactorily, you need have no apprehension. Go or stay away, whichever seems best. But be sure you're on spiritual ground before you start and that your motive in going is thoroughly good. So what's my motive for going there? Am I on fit spiritual ground? If I'm living in resentment, I stop going to meetings and I'm living in character defect and I'm starting to feel fear and I've lashed out on people, and I've harmed people, and I haven't made an amends, if I'm not maintaining my program through 10, 11, and 12, if I'm not doing these things, then I probably should not go there. But if I'm spiritually fit, I can go anywhere on this earth. Do not think of what you can get out of the Cajun. Think of what you can bring to it. But if you are shaky, you better work with another alcoholic. Why work with another alcoholic? Why is that? Why do you think they always say that? Because sitting down and working with another alcoholic helps you get out of self. Because self is my problem. My troubles are my own making. I'm an extreme example of self-will and riot, though I usually don't think so. That's from step three. Why sit with long faces in places where they have drinking, sighing about the good old days? If it's a happy occasion, try to increase the pleasure of those there. If a business occasion, go and attend your business enthusiastically. If you're with a person who wants to eat in a bar, by all means, go along. Let your friends know they're not to change their habits on your account at a proper time and place to explain all your friends why alcohol disagrees with you. If you do this thoroughly, few people will ask you to drink. While you were drinking, you were withdrawn from life little by little. Now you're getting back into the social life of this world. Don't start withdrawing again just because your friends drink liquor. Go pack something into the stream of life, man. We got in recovery so we could have a life. Go live it. Because your job now is to be in a place where you may be a maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. 
You should not hesitate to visit the most sorbid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life, and with these motives and God, you'll be unharmed. Many of us keep liquor in our homes. We often need it to carry green recruits through severe hangovers. Some of us still serve it in our, to our friends, provided they're not alcoholic. But some of us think we should not serve liquor to anyone. We never argue this question. We feel that each family, in light of their own circumstances, ought to decide for themselves. We're careful never to show intolerance or hatred of drinking as an institution. Experience shows that such attitude is not helpful to anyone. Every new alcoholic looks for the spirit among us and is immensely relieved when he finds we're not witch burners. A spirit of intolerance might repel alcoholics whose lives could have been saved had it not been for such stupidity. We would not even do the cause of temper drinking any good, for not one drinker in a thousand likes to be told anything about alcohol by one who hates it. Someday we hope Alcoholics Anonymous will help the public to a better realization of the gravity of the alcoholic problem. But we shall be of little use if our attitude is one of bitterness and hostility. Drinkers will not stand for it. After all, our problems were of our own making. Bottles were only a symbol. Besides, we've stopped fighting anything or anyone we have to. Remember, the alcohol is not the problem. It's the solution to the problem. Drugs and alcohol is the solution. Don't think, don't feel, don't care. But I'm telling you right now, guys, this is the most important step. To watch someone broken, beat down, tears in their eyes, underweight, horrible relationships, full of pain, and to watch them recover right in front of your eyes and experience God in that miracle and to see that happen right in front of your eyes and then to watch that person go help somebody else. That's what it's all about. And then that belief from step two turns into an experience and you understand how powerful God is and how he works through you and in the lives of so many people around you. So I challenge you, if you've worked your steps and you're on 12 and you haven't worked with a newcomer, find one and experience God. 